doctorate, which really focuses on the practicalities of, of uh, what I do. Um, and I'm loving it. It's absolutely just, it's one of the greatest joys of, of my life. And I'm, I'm doing a paper right now where I'm doing a lot of practical, um, sort of pragmatic, structural stuff, strategy stuff. And it's, you know, how I'm going to engage the gospel with our culture and all these things. It's very, very interesting, incredibly useful. But if I'm honest, it can be a bit dry. It can be a bit dry. A lot of, you know, 17-step processes and how do they work. And it can be a little bit, little bit dry. So to spice things up, right, um, from time to time I'll take a break, break from the reading I'm supposed to be doing. All right, students, if you've got exams, ignore this part, okay? Um, but uh, I'll take a break, and I'll read poetry, something totally on the opposite end of the spectrum, and I'm into Williams Wordsworth right now. And what's fascinating about all poetry, but, but especially Wordsworth's style, is that he repeats things over and over and over again. <clears throat> Themes, words, phrases. Why? Well, parents, you know why. Why do you repeat things over and over and over again? Because you want them to hear what you're saying, right? You want, uh, Wordsworth wants his readers to understand something. So he tells them over and over and over again. So why am I sharing this? Well, if you've been here for the past two weeks or, or even last week, what you are going to realize is that the sermon I'm going to preach is going to sound pretty much like the first two that I already have. I'm going to make the same three points I've made for the past two weeks. Now, while my ability to be lazy is always suspect, okay, you can always chalk up something to, to that. If I'm honest, what we see is actually our text is driving us to this place. I'm actually heard it read, verse 14. Now, this was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Essentially, what we have are three different stories where uh, Jesus comes and shows himself to his disciples. And why does he do that? <coughs> to them, for us, because he wants us to understand what he is telling us. And so, for the third time in a row, we're going to, to see that the Holy Spirit through John wants us to see three things from this scripture. Number one, the reality of doubt. Number two, how Jesus treats doubters. And number three, how Jesus uses doubters. So, number one, the reality of our doubt. Number two, how Jesus treats doubters. And number three, how Jesus uses doubters. So, first thing, the reality of doubt. Well, once again, if you've been here at all for the past couple of weeks, what you're going to realize is that all of the disciples doubted. They doubted that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And this is the case, even though Jesus had told them numerous times throughout his time on earth that he would be raised from the dead. And these disciples had also literally seen him raise other people from the dead. 
These weren't, they weren't sleeping, they weren't knocked out, they didn't lick some weird toad. I mean, they were really dead. And Jesus Christ raised them. But even though they had all of this, they heard the testimony that he was raised. And they refused to believe even the people that they knew and trusted the most. Why is that? Because we're not really sophisticated in the 21st century. People being raised from the dead 2,000 years ago was as crazy and insane to human beings' ears as it is today. That just doesn't happen, especially when you're crucified. There's no way that Jesus could have survived that. Locked in a tomb for three days. Just no, it's impossible. And so here we see one more time that even though Jesus had proven his identity two times before, they still didn't recognize him on the shore. It was only when Jesus acted, and we'll get to that in point two, that, 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 that their eyes were opened. Well, of course, what's true for them is certainly true for us, right? Let's be honest. We doubt supernatural things. And this doubt isn't just a 21st century scientific worldview thing. This doubt has plagued mankind since the beginning. But I would argue that it's an incredibly acute problem in our culture, in this world in which we live, which is shaped by the scientific worldview. As you'll hear later, I love science. Big fan. Okay. Not saying science is bad. But, but essentially, its, under, its way of understanding truth has overwhelmed all of our lives. And if we can't prove it, if we can't touch it, if, if it doesn't make sense to our human minds, it is not true. Uh, philosopher Charles Taylor is a contemporary philosopher, and he writes deeply on our, on our culture. And he, and he says that, that we live in a cross-pressured world. That doesn't mean like the cross of Christ per, per se, but what it means is that, is, that, is, is that if you're a Christian living in our culture, in our American uh, Western culture, that you're constantly pressured, your faith is constantly pressured by the claims of non-believers on the other side. And, you know, a lot of their arguments make sense. A lot of them resonate in our own heart. How do we know? What about pain and suffering? Can, a, can there really be a good God who's all-powerful? Well, there's pain and suffering in the world. Because you see, our culture is also constantly telling us that because reality is just right here, there's nothing beyond this, there's just us, that real happiness is found in things or experiences. Why do you think everybody has bucket lists right now, right? He said, I got this bucket list. What's on the bucket list? Well, I'm going to go, you know, water ski down Niagara Falls. I'm going to do that. That, would, that should be at the end of your bucket list if you're planning on that. That should be at the very end. But, uh, but, but let's be honest. Who doesn't want to do all these amazing, wonderful things we feel like we're missing out, right? Our culture is telling us there are all these things you're missing out. But if you're a Christian, if you trust in Christ for your salvation then actually there's a tension there, isn't there? 
Because our Christian faith is also constantly telling us that real happiness is not found in checking things off your bucket list. It's found in God's love, right? But also in self-sacrifice as we serve the world and serve him. And we see merit in that too, right? So we're, so we're doubting, we're, we're pulled between these two things and the pressure is constant from both sides. And it causes us to constantly doubt what we believe. And it feels like no peace can be found. And this in turn causes us to feel incredibly insecure about our place with God, doesn't it? Because we tell ourselves this, certainly if I was a real Christian, I would never doubt. But I'm doubting. So does that mean that I'm not his? Does that mean that he's left me? Does that mean that he won't love me? That I'm, uh, if you will, pushed out until I fix this doubt problem and get back into his love? And I'll be honest with you, I don't need to find an example. I fight this cycle every single day. Maybe some of you more, not that I'm some martyr, but I'm, I'm actively sort of intellectually and personally engaging with people with different understandings of the world and truth. And, 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 I'm, and some of that stuff disturbs me and confuses me. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this doubt? Well, that takes us to point two. The second thing John wants us to, to know is, well, okay, well, we're all doubters. And how does, then how does Jesus treat us? Well, he does an amazing, beautiful thing. He comes and he reveals himself to us. Yes, this account is similar to, to the first two where he physically shows up, does sort of this acted thing. You know, he makes them breakfast really nice. There's a lot of symbolism in that. We'll unpack that later. But, um, but, but he, speaks, he speaks to them, yes. But you know what? In this story, though, he does something really unique. He takes them back to where it all started. What Jesus does is he's reminding them of the reality of his love and forgiveness and acceptance of them is he takes them back to where it all started. Remember, maybe even when you heard in Sunday school or you just heard wherever these, these, these great stories of Jesus coming to these disciples on the beach, on a lake in, 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 uh, in uh, Galilee where the disciples are fishing. Oh, that's bringing back back up memories. And then he does this weird thing, right? What does he do here in the story? He says, you know, put your nets down on, on the other side of the boat, on the right side. That's not a political statement. Okay, don't read more. It's just the other side of the boat, okay? But he, but he tells them, put the nets down. And then when they pull them up, it's overflowing with fish. And Peter, because he's, you know, he's just, I don't know, he's just excitable. He just says, it's the Lord. And he just can't even wait. He just jumps in the water and runs back. It's like Forrest Gump, right? He just runs back. Well, what's happening here? Well, yeah, that's, that's a miracle in itself. But if you remember from Luke's gospel, Luke 5, when Jesus walks up, the first time he and Peter interact is he says, Peter, put the net down on the other side and catch fish. I knew they caught fish all night, but put it down and pull it up. And now we're back to the very beginning. And it was the first time that Peter realized Jesus was something more than just a man. And, and, and the journey 
that his disciples have gone on with Jesus since then. All of these memories get brought back where it all started. Those first moments of hope and, and joy. But it's not just these past moments. He does us something else even more wonderful. He brings back into their memories and reinterprets, if you will, even more recent events. Why? Because this is, I think, the best part. Is to remind his doubting disciples that they are loved and forgiven. The first one is, well, just the only one that I'm going to focus on is, is this. If you look at uh, 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 verse 9. And there's this really fascinating detail, right? When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Why? Why is that there? Why not just say a fire? Why, why this charcoal fire? Well, if you look back a couple chapters back, chapter 18, verse 18, we're in a totally different place. There's a charcoal fire there, yes, and Peter's there, yes. But Peter is by this charcoal fire warming his hands while he's denying Jesus three times. What is Jesus saying here? Peter, I'm taking you back. You great doubter, you great sinner, you great hypocrite. I'm taking you back to the very place where you denied me so I can show you that you are forgiven and you're loved and you're accepted and all the stain of that has been washed away. Full of acceptance and forgiveness. I love you. Now, before I begin this example, I need a caveat on it. I don't like Jesus is my boyfriend sermons. Okay, you've all heard them. I don't like them. Okay, kind of breaks down. Um, but many of you know, uh, via the Facebook, uh, Lizzie and I had our 18th wedding anniversary. We've actually dated for 10 years before, so we've been together for 28 years. Praise God. Okay, that's right. Um, she's mourning that, but that's a different story. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Friday we went downtown and we did this really cheesy thing. You can all groan and moan if you want to, but we drove by the place where we first met. You know, we drove by the place where we got engaged. We even ended up driving by the place where I got my car washed on the day that we got engaged, right? It was just kind of weird. She, she really values that, so that was important. Um, and this is kind of a side, side story. We're talking about this old thing. She goes, man, Hamilton, you were really handsome back then. But what is it? We were kind of going back to the start, right? All the reasons I've given her to not love me, all the reasons I've given her to, to uh, uh, you know, all the ways that I've failed her, all of that, right? These anniversaries are times to kind of remember, go back to, to the beginning. And when you struggle with doubt, I think one of the things that the Lord is telling us here is that when you're struggling, when, when your belief that used to be so real and so firm and so strong seems to be crumbling, seems to be paper thin, go back to the start. What's the Bible verse that really rung the bell of your heart? Where was the place where you met him? What song? What story? What friend? Where did Jesus first reveal himself to you? And it's a chance to kind of remember how great that God's love was for you. This is the Bible that I really began to engage the Lord with. And, and this is my law office Bible. I used to practice law and I'd get there early and close the door because I was terrified anybody might see me reading it. And, and, um, 
And this is the place when I am threadbare, when I'm doubting, when I don't feel the presence of God. I go back here and I look at these. I have the, you know, very, you know, different tabs mean different things, right? And the longer, brighter tabs mean this was the verse or this was the story. And I go back to those places and I'm reminded that all of that was real. My awe and wonder of Jesus, that was real. And the truth of who God is can become self-evident once again. So if you're doubting, go back to the start. That's our second point. But of course, the Lord doesn't leave us there, right? He not only forgives and redeems and restores and treats us sinners in that way with love and welcomes us into his family. But he doesn't leave us there. He uses us. Now, many sermons have been preached over 15 through through 19. I'm not going to carry on too long and dissect it too uh, deeply. But what you essentially have here is the recommissioning of Peter, right? He's kind of going back to the start when, when uh, Peter revealed who he was, I mean, when uh, Jesus revealed who he was, and, and uh, Peter said, you know, you, you're going to be the rock of the church, you're going to be the chief disciple, you're going to go out and take, take the gospel out. Peter soon did not erase that call. And in fact, it tells us a really beautiful thing, doesn't it? So it's not the strong ones that... Uh, Jesus sends out. It's not the Teflon men and women who seem to never have any problems or never have any doubts or never have any struggles. It's the ones who waffled and wavered and doubt and cry out in the deepest, darkest places of their lives. Lord, show yourself to me. Why these? Because these are the only ones who know the beauty of his forgiveness, of his truth, of his patience, of his love. They're the ones that are so fully aware of their weakness. And then that allows them to see the greatest mercy that their Savior could show. Um, I had the pleasure of studying underneath the fellow named Alistair McGrath. And if you don't know who he is, YouTube him, he's fantastic. But um, he was a, a professor at a at our, at our seminary, and the first thing that, that he did before becoming a, a theologian was to become a Christian, and his first PhD was in, from Oxford University, was in molecular biophysics. I don't even know what that is, much less getting a PhD in it, right? But a full PhD in this time, he's very, you know, he, he's an atheist, he thinks that, that, you know, only the human mind can understand things, but the Lord loves him enough to haunt him. And to plant seeds of doubt in his heart. And once he finished that, he began to realize, no, science is wonderful, but it can only tell me this much about reality when there's all of this. It could never answer the real deep questions of the human heart. And it was because he was a doubter, because he was a questioner, because he also, in this process of asking hard questions of God, realized that he was a sinner worse than he ever thought possible. And because of all these personal wrestlings and grapplings, he was given a profound understanding of the depths of the love of Jesus Christ for us sinners. Which this now led him to become one of the most important 
Christian evangelists, especially to the scientific world in our current day. So if you're doubting, praise God for it. Praise God for it. Why? Because this will be the avenue by which our Lord brings us closer and more deeply to him. Yes, but also so that we will have a really powerful and strong knowledge that we can then take out to the world. And feed the lambs and feed the sheep, but not just feed their intellectual questions. Because all of us, if we're honest, our intellectual doubts are just window dressing for real heart woundedness. If God really loved me, then why did he let this happen? If God really loved me, then why did he make me this way? If God really loved me, then why didn't he take care of me when my father abused me or when my mother left me or when my spouse beat me? Because you see, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can offer healing to the world's true hurts and true pains and true questions. We can feed them with true spiritual food. We're all doubters. God treats doubters with forgiveness and welcome and love and he reveals himself. And then in one of the great mysteries of all, he uses the weakest to proclaim his message of good news. But I want to end on this point. Going back to point one. I said we're cross-pressured, right? Well, the cross pressure doesn't just work for those who are Christians. One of the things I love about this uh, church is almost every Sunday there's somebody in here that's kind of wrestling with the faith or has questions about the uh, Christian faith. or They wouldn't call themselves Christians yet, but, but they're curious. But if we're honest, if, if you're honest, you feel cross pressure too, right? Doesn't it seem like God's haunting you? That for all of the objections that we throw up and all the ways we want to feel like oh, all that stuff is just silliness and it's ways that we make ourselves feel better and deal with the difficulties of, uh, of stress and death in this life and just invented God as a crutch. Those seem to have intellectual merit, but the problem is, is that they don't satisfy your heart. And what you're hearing here is freaking you out because you kind of want it to be true. Well, if that's you, that's not a figment of your imagination. That is a loving God revealing himself to you on this day. Receive the invitation. Open your eyes and accept the forgiving love of Jesus Christ on this day in this place. And this is good news for our doubt, for us doubting sinners indeed. Amen.